Um, oh yes, yes, it is. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this very, very warm uh, Brussels morning um, on this uh, event on China's investment in Africa and consequences for Europe. This is a topic that we will um, we will actually do more of, uh, certainly on the Chinese aspect, but also on the relationship with Africa. We have uh, an incomplete panel up till now, but we are hoping that the last speaker will join us. But I think we should start, uh, if you don't mind. I think we should start. We only have till 10:30, so I think it's important to to make a start. Um, on my left, let me briefly introduce you our speakers, Shalon Chatelard, who will go first in this presentation. Um, then we have uh, Alicia. Everybody knows Alicia. She's a, uh, a, she's a fellow here at Bruegel. And then on the, on the far left, uh, I have Estelle Yusufa, who's a news anchor from France. Um, and we are hoping to get also the last speaker from Huawei, but has not arrived yet. Um, why don't we take about 10 minutes for initial uh, comments, each one of you? Um, then we will... Uh, get uh, perhaps a small conversation between us, and then afterwards we will open up for, for questions from the audience, if that's okay with you. So, why don't we ask with uh, Solange, can we start with you? Yes, you have a, uh, there is this, uh, you need to point in this direction when you in change this. Direction. Yeah. Well, they will put the slides on if you might. And thank you for joining us so early. <laughs> is it, uh, can we have the slides on, please, for Solange? Yeah. So I'll, I'll maybe just start off um, by thanking the organizers for inviting me here at this event. And I'm very honored to be part of um, this very distinguished panel. And I'm also delighted to see that uh, there are many women here. Uh, one of the speakers who's missing, if I'm not mistaken, is a man. But I'm very often I speak on panels, and I'm very often the only woman. So it's always um, uh, it's very uh, reward rewarding to see uh, other women here. So I think we have a slight size problem with size. In terms of the presentation. And also a quick caveat. So I'm not an economist. I know this is an economic think tank. I'm a political scientist by training, uh, and I do most of my research in Africa, in, in, in Zambia. Um, so what I'm going to do this morning is maybe sort of before we go into the number crunching and before we go into the really sort of complex uh, micro and macroeconomic dimensions of this relationship, I'd like to give you some sort of broader historical um, um, contextualization of how China situates itself vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Africa. And I'm hopefully I'm going to try and do it from uh, a relatively uh, Chinese perspective. So I'm going to start off with showing you a map of old Beijing. I don't know how many of you are familiar with China, with Beijing in particular, but this is what Beijing looks like. Um, it's built around a concentric system with the imperial city right at its center, the forbidden city as you see here, uh, surrounded by the imperial city, which is where all those servicing um, the emperor lived, so his eunuchs, his ministers, etc. <clears throat> then the inner city here, surrounded by a huge wall, and 11 gates and watchtowers, and then the outer city. If you've been to Beijing recently, the, 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 the architecture of the city has expanded considerably. We've got about five or six or seven of these ring roads around Beijing now, and these are the original ones. And in the early 1960s, I'm going to start with a, a story of a young French diplomat uh, who's a veteran diplomat who went on to become the ambassador, the French ambassador in Beijing in the late 90s. He had his first mission to China in the early 60s at the cusp of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. So what did he see when he arrived in Beijing in the early 60s? Well, first of all, this huge city wall that you see was actually still around. Just to give you an idea of how imposing that was, this is one of the watchtowers around that tower. That's the one in the southeast tower. And the former European um, diplomatic area was here. 
right opposite Tiananmen, here near Tiananmen, and that was where the European delegation was. And that was all the, Euro all, let's say, the imperial powers. So you had the French, the British, the Austro-Hungarians, the Italians, the Germans, the Belgians, the Japanese, the Russian, the Americans. They were all here, really strategically at the door of China's imperial city. So if you'd arrived any time in Beijing in the start of the 20th century, you were a diplomat, that's where you were, very, very close to central power. What happens in 1949, once the PRC comes into power, is that they move this foreign presence from the proximity of the heart of political power. And they create two new diplomatic compounds in the city, outside of the old inner city walls. So one, the first diplomatic compound is here, Temple of the Sun, really outside the inner city. So it's a very clear strategic move for them to create a distance. Temple of the Sun is near Jiangomen, for anybody who is familiar with Beijing. And this, this first diplomatic compound was essentially built for all those joining the socialist camp. So Vietnam, Korea, Mongolia, Poland, Romania, etc. Then a second one was built slightly further north, three li's away. A li in China is a measure word, a bit like a kilometer. Three li's away, and that's why it became San Li Tun, which is a three li's away. So if you're familiar with San Li Tun in Beijing, so now it's sort of a center for, for tourism, for commerce, for business, and it's just situated here. I'm having some problems with this light there. North here, just outside of Dongzhimen. And this is essentially a new diplomatic compound that was built for the new states that were arriving since decolonization. So you had Cameroon, you had Congo, you had Morocco, Algeria, and that was where the new French embassy was established, sandwiched in between the new embassy for Syria that recently gained independence and was formerly under French tutelage, and Equatorial New Guinea. So the reason I think um, it's important to start with this vignette is really to contextualize kind of what Beijing's, how Beijing sees kind of the global south and Africa as part of that. Uh, the two main takeaways, I would say, is China has actually been interested in what's been happening beyond its borders for a very long time, particularly to what was happening to former European empires. Um, and it has really managed its relationship strategically with the global south in order to work its way in this kind of shifting international system. It's really through its relationship with the global south that China has positioned itself um, in the larger landscape of the wider international um, state system. So I think that's the first point. Africa is essentially not a new item of interest on China's agenda. It's been there for a very long time. Um, and the second issue is really to give you an idea of, to, not necessarily to, to provincialize Europe, because Europe, of course, is essential for China, but really to contextualize what Europe means to China in a broader his context of geopolitical competition. And China's actually primary rival, some would say it's the United States, and I would argue it was probably the Soviet Union from the 50s onwards. Um, but so it's to tell you, you know, how Europe situates itself compared to other things. So to give you an idea, China makes a massive push into Africa in the 1960s. And we're talking sending out volunteers, you know, distributing aid. This is a picture of um, you know, a, a, a barefoot doctor. But what it's really exporting is its ideology, its Maoism. So there are two strategic reasons that China makes a push into Africa. The first, of course, is the strategic competition with Taiwan, or a proxy war with the United States. So Taiwan has official embassies all across the African continent. So China is not officially recognized 
as, I mean, Beijing, the PRC, the People's Republic of China, has, doesn't have a seat at the UN Security Council until 1971. So up until 1971, China is actively pushing for Beijing to become the official China, you know, in the eyes of the international community. That's the first strategic competition. The second one, of course, which is the most critical one, is the Sino-Soviet split in the middle of the, 90, the middle of the 50s. And what does that mean? This is really a, a very important historical period where China essentially goes from being the junior partner in the International Communist Alliance to the torchbearer of international revolution. So this is a very, very important point and explains a lot of China's big power moves um, both in Africa but across uh, the rest of the planet. So China basically, you know, after the Khrushchev shift, China essentially claims that it is the true legitimate guardian of the Marxist-Leninist uh, revolution, ideal revolution. And it manifests itself most concretely in the form of the Tanzania-Zambri railway, which remains to this day the single largest Chinese aid project on the African continent. And what it is, you have this kind of ideological alignment between President Nyerere of Tanzania, Mao Zedong, and Kenneth Kaunda, who's the first president of, of, uh, of Zambia. And essentially, it's linking this country, Zambia, where I do all my research, which is a country that is enclaved. It has no access to the sea. It is surrounded by, in the, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, by colonial governments. We're talking Portuguese governments, the Belgian government. Um, it's got Zimbabwe, Botswana, South Africa under the apartheid regime. So really, no one who's going to give it access to the critical exit it needs. And Tanzania, with President Nyerere, strikes an alliance. And they say, we'll give you access to the port of Dar es Salaam, but we need a railway to basically de-enclave uh, the country. Just a little bit of background. So Zambia, as you see, this landlocked country, um, is a copper-producing country, essentially. Uh, and most of the copper and the cobalt is situated in the north of the country here in what we call the Copper Belt province. It shares its longest border with the Congo here in the north. And this is the Katanga region of, of, of the DRC, where all the natural, a lot of the natural resources in the DRC are. So the cobalt and the, and the copper that you hear that we're mining in Congo comes from here. This is the copper belt. And then, of course, Angola here in the west. I mean, this, very quickly, the project involved 100,000 people, including Tanzania, Zambia workers, etc. The railway still works today. It's a single line track. It's about 2,000 kilometers across very hostile territory. I mean, this is a colossal project. You know, it really mobilizes the minds and the imaginations of the masses, both in China uh, and in Africa. And it's still around. But of course, you know, the world has changed today. And what has changed? Well, two, I think, very important things have changed. On the international level, China is no longer challenging the Soviet Union. Okay? That is no longer a major competitor. I think we've all seen Beijing has beaten Moscow, at least on the level of regime survival. It, that competition is a game over. Second, it's, the, and it has, it's also kind of won the diplomatic race against Taiwan on the African continent. Today, there is only one Taiwanese embassy left on the continent, and that's in Itswahini, which used to be former Swaziland, which is a small enclave country, mountainous country in South Africa. And Taiwan has two representative missions, one in South Africa and one in Nigeria. The race is still on in other parts of the world. In Latin and Central America, for instance, there are still about nine Taiwanese embassies and maybe many more um, official consulates and representative missions. But essentially, on the African continent, Beijing has wiped out that race with Taiwan. And at the domestic level, we've got what we call China's crisis of success. So three and four decades of um, frenetic uh, growth has essentially led to very, very serious economic <coughs> bottlenecks and deep structural imbalances within the economy. And you know, you're all economists, so there's nothing really I can teach you here. But essentially, sort of the conditions and the circumstances which enabled China's miraculous growth for the last three decades have become, I would say, an obstacle to China's growth uh, in the future. 
So essentially, it has to change its business model. We talk about the structural imbalances. I mean, we go very, you know, a dozen, basically, China has several, I think maybe 25, 26 provinces altogether. But the point is, you know, less than half of these provinces are, you know, account for the lion's share of economic growth across the country. So you've got really the coastal, the coastal provinces that are really huge powerhouses and, and a lot of kind of lesser development towards the inland of the country. And what you're seeing essentially is an overcapacity in some fields and under, in China's being under-resourced in another. So you've got overcapacity in terms of industry, in terms of construction, particularly in sectors where the Chinese have been heavily overinvesting domestically. But also since the early 2000s, you've also have some, to some extent financial overcapacity with huge foreign exchange reserves. Those have been dwindling, I mean, slowing down recently. But in the early 2000s, you know, China had to think, what are we going to do with all this money? We had to invest it. Um, and you also have, of course, uh, you know, labor rate wages that are rising. And it's under-resourced. It has basically you know, limited um, natural resources. It's limited in terms of energy as well. Um, and China essentially, you know, might get old before it gets rich, you know, so it's facing this very important period of its demographic dividend where it has to decide how is it going to sustain, you know, the growth of its economy in, in the next few phases. Um, it also, so just very quickly, it can't rely on traditional export markets. It's got falling profit rates. So it has to focus on, you know, it has to essentially, you know, revamp, you know, its business model. I think a lot of us here are aware of that. So it's the China 2025, you know, where China wants to become a leader in critical um, technologies in certain critical areas, digital technologies, AI, automation, etc. Um, it... I mean, I'm not an economist, as I said, but I think China's new uh, development model, it relies on two different things. So deep reform domestically, which is essentially focusing on indigenous innovation, domestic consumption, but also, and more importantly, what I call socio-demographic alignment. And that means handling the growing disenchanted populations and masses who are not basically benefiting from the windfall of reform. And that is huge. And as we were talking about that earlier in Hong Kong, that's what we're seeing. You know, there's a very, very significant social uh, disenchantment that, of course, has, you know, tangents with um, economic, um, feeling economically excluded to some extent. But I think that, that's very important. And, of course, um, deeper... Deeper economic integration can also help China resolve or at least absorb some of its problems. This, of course, has led China, you know, on a massive shopping spree, on expansion, first in the early 2000s to the go-out policy, and it has morphed, it has graduated into the Belt and Road Initiative. So I'm just really going to go through kind of some of the classic image that we see. It's created a lot of fear. It, this, this extension, this idea, this push outwards, which is essentially generated from the next round of domestic structural reforms, has been perceived as very aggressive, you know, as a manifestation of China's growing assertiveness. And at least on the African continent, this is what we're seeing. You know, China's coming in, it's sweeping in, and it's taking over like a new um, colonizer. Um, on the other side, so on the one hand, you have sort of this paranoia and this fear of China kind of taking over. And then on the other hand, you have the Chinese who'd like to, us to believe that this is really actually what is happening on the continent. You know, brother, brother countries, brother nations, all weather friends, etc. So really, when you're an observer and an analyst and a scholar of this relationship, you're really kind of sandwiched between these two poles, these two polarized visions. And there's very little research and analysis that tries to go into the gray area, that tries to say, well, it's neither really just pure neocolonialism and it's not this kind of propaganda friendship that the Chinese government would like to say. What you see and what people hear are generally the vanity projects, you know, the big infrastructure projects like 
you know, uh, pipelines, roads, bridges, stadiums. You also hear about, of course, China's cheap, cheap credit lines and the cheap credit that China's giving um, different countries in Africa. This is very important. But a growing part of um, this story, and that's actually what my research focuses on specifically, is the story of private migrants and individuals who are going out there. And this is really a major part of the story that we're not hearing about. We tend to think that the story is one of top-down Beijing sending its people and its company and its money to Africa, whereas in quantitative numbers, at least, not financial numbers, but at numerical numbers, a lot of these people are private enterprises, private families going out there, including, you know, even these big, large, you know, state-owned enterprises, they need to be manned by staff. And a lot of these um, managers, these company managers and the employees are basically being recruited domestically through labor recruitment. So what we're seeing is really kind of a deep transforming, the restructuring of the labor market in China and the reorganization of these labor markets in Africa. But the private stories is, is really the dimension that I like to insist on. So this is you know, someone who's you know, professionals who've already had a life in China, who start a second life in, in, in Zambia in different sectors, services, uh, manufacturing, but also in things that we would never you know, expect, like in you know, rural agriculture, for example. So I think that's uh, what we'd like to talk about. And why is that important? Well, because a lot of these firms, if you see here, this is a standard charter bank, and they're advertising their services. Why? Because they're simply a larger, a, a, a very, very vast or growing Chinese population in the country. And Chinese businesses and foreign businesses come in and make money out of them because it's new money in the country. It's dynamism. It's economic dynamism. So this is what you would see. If you land in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, and you drive into the town, there's one main artery that is a road paved, and you can go into the town center. You see this, and you will see this everywhere. And these Chinese companies that are essentially contractors, you know, they're contractors, they're funded by maybe a, you know, a Chinese development bank uh, or a bilateral bank or maybe the EU or the USAID, but they're essentially contractors, you know, servicing a domestic client um, or they're private firms, but they're not sort of, they're not, the act, they're not the proprietors, they don't own these projects, they don't own the ports, they don't own the bridges, they don't own the stadiums. But what they do do, however, they leave massive visual footprints. And that's what you're seeing. So you're seeing the rise of the visual footprint of Chinese, whether it's through advertising, through construction, through these labor camps. Um, and we don't really know what's past that. Uh, and in order to kind of understand, I want to switch now, and I want to move from the back, to, move into the African perspective. Oh, sorry. Very quickly. Well, Africa, just to, to give you an idea, because we, if we're talking about neocolonialism, I think the, the context is slightly different. So what Africa really experienced in the 1990s is what we call the dual liberalization, which is the political reform where we encourage people, well, governments essentially, authoritarian governments to shift to multi-party democracy. But what effectively happened really was the segmentation of the original parties and then people fragmenting from these parties and populating new parties. So we didn't really move to a multi-party democracy. We just moved to the segmentation of existing parties. So that's what, that was the democratization process in Africa in most of the cases. But also economic reform, so privatization, deregulation, and essentially you know, aligning your national development policy according to market-driven reform. So China essentially is knocking on a wide open door. You know, Despite what you hear in the media, Chinese African leaders are fighting over themselves, competing against each other heavily for the attention of Chinese leaders. They want access to that cheap credit, they want the projects, whether they can manage them and turn them into something, transform them into um, local sustainable growth is a whole other issue, but there's definitely interest, at least from African leaders, for this, you know, this new Chinese investment or credit. But that is, of course, ha happening at the back of rising nationalism. So the backlash of neoliberal reform, essentially, is that it undermined the traditional bargaining powers, the bargaining power, you know, the institutions that had bargaining power in uh, a lot of these countries. So in Zambia, which is a mine-rich, extractive country that is based on you know, labor-intensive industries like mining, 
what you had with neoliberalization was you know, selling off all these mines and also breaking up a lot of the social insurance that came together with the package of employment, very similar to what you saw in China. So you have a lot of disenchantment, a lot of discontent, you know, the jobs are going um, and, and the quality of jobs is, is, is becoming more and more unstable. And it's against this kind of rising resource nationalism that um, China is being singled out. And the, the most obvious case for that, again, is in, is in Zambia. So ironically, this country that was kind of the, China's brother nation, this kind of privileged partner of, of the Maoist period, became the country in which we had the first highly vocal anti-Chinese presidential candidate who, after three successive presidential candidates, explicitly on an anti-Chinese ticket, so we're going to kick the Chinese out, he compared the Chinese to uh, investors and not investors, and he, you know, he, he used it, he branded the Chinese thing all the time, he was really like a local Trump populist leader, and he was eventually elected in 2011 as uh, the leader of, of Zambia. Okay, I don't have time, but essentially, maybe what are, they, what are, what are they doing differently? Very quickly, they add value uh, locally. So in the case of the mines, they built a, a processing plant um, in the mines, which the Zambians have been asking for decades, since the 1950s, uh, 60s, and since independence, that nobody basically wanted to fund because it just wasn't uh, profitable enough. And the Chinese add value locally in terms of they wanted to do that. They invest in maybe areas like infrastructure that others didn't want to invest in. They are long-term patient investors. I think that's something we could go back on, and they are open to negotiate. In order, basically, in conclusion, I had to accelerate. Often we talk about Chinese having a very hard economic agenda, and that they're ready to close their eyes on local corruption and build these sort of you know dubious alliances in order to push you know and, and look close their eyes on politics. And I would argue that there is a kind of a two-tier system, at least within state investment. The top-tier investment, when it's really strategically important for the Chinese government, they have a hard geopolitical agenda and a soft economic agenda, which means what? Which means they're willing to take, they're willing to bear the brunt of costs on an investment. They're willing to lose money. So they will forfeit on their profits in the mines in Zambia, for example, just as they will forfeit on profits in Sri Lanka, on the port. On certain strategic areas, they're willing to compromise on their economic gains in order to gain on the political side. But if you're looking at SOEs that have a profit-driven motive, or simply you know, Chinese companies, private Chinese companies, who just want to be sustainable on the market, they have a hard economic agenda. Okay. We can come back to that, actually. Yeah. So that would be... Thank you very much. That's very comprehensive, actually. Uh, and now, Alicia, if you can give us some of the numbers, of the investment numbers in, uh, in China, then we'll have a good picture of, uh, to have the discussion on. If you can have uh, Alicia's uh, slides on, please. Thanks for organizing, uh, Maria, and for bringing us together. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my presentation is going to be much more boring uh, than that of Solange, much less interesting. The good thing is going to be shorter, so bear with me for a few minutes. And I think I'm just, indeed, after that con con contextualization of what really Africa is for China, which I think is, is very important, I'm just going to go through a bunch of numbers to put that into context, because I fully agree that there is a, an SOE story, a private story. There is a acquisitions of companies as opposed to greenfield investment. Um, and the question really is, how big is each of it? And I, the numbers will actually confirm what Solange was saying, that most of what you see is actually credit, not investment. They may not actually own what we think they, meaning Chinese companies, what we think they own. They actually just lend into project finance, massive project finance projects, and, and, 
and that's most of what's happening actually. Um, so yeah, so it's going to be really a data-driven uh, presentation to to put that the contextualization into numbers. So I'm going to talk about direct investment, uh, mergers and acquisitions, greenfield investment, and project finance, and and a little bit of sectoral uh, a sectoral landscape of where they are investing, and some conclusions as to whether which I think is a very important question for Africa, jobs are being created out of this investment. Um, so the first thing to, to say, I guess, is that, uh, I mean, it would look as if it were only China, uh, sorry, Africa receiving massive amounts of Chinese investment, and actually Africa is receiving hardly any investment, <laughs> direct investment, which is what I'm showing here compared to the rest of the world, including several emerging uh, or regions such as Latin America. So first of all, it's peanuts compared to what Africa needs. And that would actually make it quite valuable that anybody, including China, <laughs> invest in Africa. So I think the first uh, point to take into account is Africa desperately needs foreign direct investment. I'm sure that. Uh, Estelle will agree with this later, but I'm not, you know, I'm not going to overshadow her, her presentation later. So, the second thing is yes, China has, is increasing its investment, direct investment in Africa. So so far so good, needed, and uh, being present. Of course, it's not the largest area uh, for of investment for China. I'm not showing that, but compared to the rest of the world, yes, there is this kind of bias towards more investment into Africa compared to what the rest of the world invests in Africa. However, the bulk of what China does in Africa, look at these numbers, we are hovering around 25 billion a year, is project finance. And this is lending. And I'm not going to get into the debt trap story anytime soon, but I'm just saying it's not the same to invest than to lend. Uh, now, is China the largest investor in Africa? Not at all. We are the largest investors. We tend to forget this uh, minor point here. Europe, by far, is the largest investor in Africa. We don't seem to realize, or, you know, we, we, I don't know where our standard charter signs are in French and it, Italian, but frankly speaking, and I very much liked, by the way, Solange's point that uh, China is kind of changing the, the visual landscape. I mean, you use a different expression, but that's the idea. I think it is beyond the numbers. It's the influence that China's investment and lending is having in Africa more than the actual numbers. And is this because we are the old colonialists? Is it because we're not using our influence properly? Big questions to, to answer. Uh, too big for my for the time for for my time here, but maybe for Q and A. Now, what? However, our investment, our meaning Europe and Chinese investment is slightly different, and probably Huawei is an exception because you're mainly greenfield, i.e., you not generally buy companies. You can, you know, the of course. Uh, um, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but generally, M&A, and I will show you the sectors in a minute, is basically buying companies mainly into the energy sector um, resources in general. Greenfield is, is uh, actually more diversified across sectors, although not so much as you would imagine. And that's where Europe, 
bears the bulk of the investment. So we are greenfield investors, while China is mostly an M&A investor. So this is the second idea I wanted to mention. Uh, so uh, now these are many numbers. This is just a detail to, to give you a sense of how much is M&A versus greenfield. Remember, M&A, the thing I showed you at the beginning where where France, UK, were you know among the largest. That's the stock. There's many young people, so maybe this is like a little crash course on investment data. That's the the all of what had has been accumulated so far. What I'm showing you here is flow, meaning sometimes negative numbers because Europe, for example, in 2017, massively divested from Africa. Maybe it sold the company to China, by the way. Most likely, because it's a big number, or several, by the way. So, so there's a much more kind of, you know, big wins in the M&A spectrum, because these are generally big, big acquisitions or divestments of companies. But the greenfield is relatively stable number, and as you see, Europe is is indeed much bigger. It's about more than double China, even triple sometimes every year every year. So if there are many private investors from China that you see, Solange, we should also see the private investors from Europe. Where are they? Uh, I want to know whether you met them, because the numbers are there. I don't know who they are, but they're big numbers. Now, sectoral distribution, and here I'm focusing on China because that was the purpose. I'm not going to compare with Europe. I don't even have the data, to be frank, but it would be an interesting exercise. So the bulk of the investment, again, is M&A, mostly energy, 60%. That's what it is. Beyond energy is infrastructure, metals, and materials. There's hardly, there's a little bit of ICT, tiny, tiny, and there's no manufacturing. Where is the manufacturing? You, you could say, oh, no worries, manufacturing, I don't need to buy a company. I just invest greenfield. It's not there either. It's hardly textile, 7%. That's what I can find. The rest is transportation, real estate, metals, coal, a little bit of business services, 2%. But my point is even the greenfield investment is not so much geared towards what I believe. And I'm not saying uh, Africa doesn't need transportation or, you know, it surely does. But frankly speaking, for such a growing population with you know, the share of young people which needs to be employed. Somebody, and I'm not blaming China, we should do the same. I don't have the European numbers. Probably we aren't either. Somebody should be bringing the manufacturing there to create the needed jobs. Um, on, a, on the project finance side, uh, again, it's mainly transport and energy. So even the lending is very much focused on the very same sectors. So there is a heavy concentration in a nutshell of either investment or lending into infra and energy or resources and infra transport, uh, basically, uh, from China. Now, as you can imagine, if those are the numbers I'm seeing, this is very small, I'll, I'll guide you through very quickly. I guess you would imagine that I cannot really find major creation of jobs out of China's investment. I only have data for Greenfield, and the latest thing I can, I can have access to, this is a very expensive data set, by the way, which I had access to until recently. Uh, and 
and it shows, other than every single greenfield investment, how many jobs per investment. It's quite amazing. So I can even tell you that, that in 2017, China created 99,000, which is close to what they needed to uh, build, uh, you know, just one, uh, uh, one major infrastructure project in, uh, back in time. But these are the jobs that have been created. It doesn't mean they have been filled by African, by the way. And I leave it there because I don't have those numbers. But I'm just saying, these are all of the jobs that have been created. And this is 1.78 jobs per million of dollars invested. Now, is this a lot? The only thing I have to compare is the average job creation of African, oh, sorry, Chinese greenfield investment in the world. I'm not comparing it with Europe because I don't have those data. But I know that China, and, and I don't know how whether China creates more or less jobs than others. I can't argue that. But I can tell that it does create much fewer jobs on average in Africa than elsewhere. And I think this is because no matter, indeed, the presence of private investors and, and greenfield, but in relative terms, in relative terms, there is still very much M&A, very much uh, when it's greenfield, energy, and infra. So, so in other words, while this investment is welcome, no doubt about it, um, probably even the lending, uh, forget about the, the debt trap now, but you know, surely there is huge investment needs and financing needs in Africa. But I just wish, and that's just a wish, that it were more labor intensive. Uh, and I actually think this would be good for everybody, including uh, China down the road. So, so here, uh, again, a lot of detail. You see uh, just a little bit of a proof of what I'm saying. Textiles, as you remember, was only 7%. It creates 27% of its jobs. The jobs are in the manufacturing sector. This is what shows the point that, or the auto, which was a minor uh, sector in terms of greenfield investment, the share. So if more jobs were moving to those manufacturing sectors, uh, sorry, more investment, many more jobs would be created. And that's basically what I have to say. So in a nutshell, I think, yes, China has become a large investor in Africa, but Europe still is the largest. It would be extremely interesting to know what we are doing there and why we do not seem to or we don't talk about it, or we don't seem to be there, or you know, some people here may disagree, but just the, the impression in the media is that this is a continent dominated by China. And I think this is something that we should think about, how to change that, that impression. Uh, yes, uh, um, perhaps the last thing to say is it's great to have Chinese investment in Africa. Uh, any investment is welcome even lending as long as it can be paid back, and maybe if projects are well chosen, why not, and needed. But I think, importantly, all of this needs to have a plan, and this is not only China or Europe, certainly Africa, because they are the largest beneficiaries of, of creating the jobs needed for all of this to be sustainable, let alone the debt, which needs to be repaid. <clears throat> so if these jobs do not exist, there won't not enough income will be generated to sustain this model. 
Thank you. Thank you very much, Alicia. That's, that's great, uh, very complimentary to what we heard uh, earlier on on the numbers. But let's hear directly from, from industry then. Abraham, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're here to present you from Huawei. Uh, please, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, it's my pleasure. And uh, I'm sorry for a bit late you know, due to the traffic yet. And uh, myself, uh, you know, I have been working in Africa for nine years. You know, as of, that was year 2002. I was 23 years old. I was sent by the Huawei to Africa. That's at the continent. So we have only around uh, 50 people for the whole African continent. And now, uh, until the end of last year, we have around uh, more than 5,000 employees, and around 70% of them are, are local African people. And uh, as I said, I spent nine years in Africa, and I did experience how the, the natural you know, uh, environment, how beautiful it is, and um, how I'm balanced from South Africa to Nigeria, you know, the different country, from country to country. And I also, myself, I did participate the journey, especially in the ICT sector, ICT transformation, how the, the, the ICT technology played a role in Africa. And uh, I still remember, you know, I think many colleagues, colleagues of mine, they, have, they, have, they must have the same experience. That's when we, while we, you know, entered to a certain market, built a base station in one of the village, and, uh, you know, power on, we see the villagers, they, they are so happy, and they, they, they're dancing around the tower. And when the kids, the small children, they make a call from the village to his uh, friends or, or relatives in, in Kinshasa, in, in, a sub, in, in, a, in a city, the, their, their eyes are lighting up. And for me, it's, it's so you know, clear image in my mind, because I was born in China when I was, you know, I only get access to the electricity uh, when I was 11 years old, it's a remote area, village. That's f for that reason, I think Huawei we did play a, a big role in Africa in terms of uh, bridging the digital divide. And uh, when I went to uh, Congo in 2004, I was the first one uh, from Huawei, you know, develop a new, new market. And I remember the tariff to make a call. It, at the very beginning, it, were, it is around five US dollars per minute. You know, and when I leave from Africa in uh, 2000, end of 2011, it dropped down to 10 cents around per minute. So the penetration, you know, telecommunication, telecom services penetration has been increased from less than 5% for the whole continent. And last year, you know, to, it, it, the figure is more than 80%. I think that, uh, in that sense, we are proud as a Huawei people. You know, we played such a role, and I myself, uh, you know, was part of the journey. And how did this ICT, you know, technology change or impacted to the African continent? I may share you a, a few little stories. You know, and uh, one uh, story impressed me is what happened in Kenya. We worked with the biggest operator, Safaricom. We built the national wide you know, uh, wireless uh, network. And remember, their fixed line, you know, was very undeveloped. 
so they, they don't have that much you know legacies you know for the for the fixed line so they, they invest every money into the mobile telecommunication and to be honest with you when I move from uh, Kenya in 2000, uh, 2012 to uh, uh, Jakarta in Indonesia I was transferred to Asia Pacific my user experience of the mobile internet is is not as good as the one in, in Kenya and uh, Again, you know, in Kenya, the most famous services they provided to the people is M-Pesa, which, which is a wireless, cashless, you know, uh, wallet or money trans transaction system. So Kenya, they don't have a strong uh, fixed line. They don't have a, a, a very developed credit card system. But that M-Pesa, based on the apps or, or uh, short message services from the mobile phone, played a great role, a big role in, 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 in Kenya to help people to transfer money from the capital city when they get paid from the job to their village, to their relatives in a rural suburban area. And uh, if you are interested in you can you can discover more from uh, one of the interview uh, from CNN interviewed the, the ex-CEO, you know, from Safaricom, uh, Michael, my friend, and Michael Joseph. And uh, that, that, that's one of the story. And another story, actually, it was not my story. It was in, I was told by the uh, uh, professor, Nicolas Nicropanti. You know, he, 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 actually, the, he, he's the, the, the founder of the MIT Media Lab. And uh, he did a trial in Ethiopia, in one of the very remote area where there is no electricity. And people have, don't have, most of the people, they don't know even a word in writing. You see, so what they did, they, they, they sent a few tablets with the access of the internet, uh, mobile internet, but they didn't, they didn't have that before. So they sent those uh, tablets, and the quantity of the tablets is equal to the children's. You know, there are like 10 children, they 10, 10, 10 tablets, and plus a solar power, you know, socket. So after, uh, they, they just give, leave it there, and then they leave. They monitor from a, a, a wireless uh, camera what is about what is happening. So what happened is, you know, within they said. So the within like one week. So without any extra instruction, the people they began to sing ABC songs. You know, they they they, they just did, did discover by themselves, and within two weeks. They were using more than 50 apps per day for seven hours per day. And that seven hours is a battery life for, 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 for one day before they, they charge it from the, the, the solar, power, solar panel. And six months later, they hacked Android. And this story is not my story. It's from uh, Nicholas Nicropandi. And uh, this actually impressed me what kind of role will the digital technology possibly play in the whole, in the whole continent. And for that reason, I'm, I think our journey in Africa, you know, or our partnership you know, with our customer in Africa is, is really meaning you know, about a lot more things, not you know, from the just kind of uh, business or investment. It's much more than that. And, uh, uh, you know, I would like to share with you the last message is our collaboration in Africa. You know, many, quite often it, it, it is been talked as one of the Chinese investment or Chinese development in Africa. But in many cases, in our case especially, it's, it's a 
a, a, a collaboration. It's a much bigger story. It's, it's more about Huawei's collaboration with our European players. You know, because, for example, when I was in Africa, in, in Congo, I was the first CEO of Huawei in Congo, and my first customer is uh, Vodacom. Vodacom is a subsidiary of Vodafone, you see. And then we have Orange. Orange is, is actually a European uh, yeah, operator. So a lot of collaboration and a lot of uh, innovation you know, we bring to African continent is co-developed with our European uh, stakeholders. For example, one of the, the, the rural stars. You know, rural star, because in Africa, you know, in many uh, places, the density is not so high, the population density. So for, for if the operator only invests uh, the based, on, based on the business case, in many situations, the remote area won't be easily covered. So what we do, we, we develop some very cost-effective all-in-one, uh, we call it rural star. So we have the solar power, and the base station can be easily uh, installed in a, in, a, in, a, in a simple pool, so that you get a cost-effective solution and a fast, fast develop, uh, deployment of this kind of uh, system. And these are kind of joint efforts together with our uh, customer. And uh, if you ask me about the future, because we are here in Europe, we are talking about the ICT as an enabler to transform the, the, the vertical industry in the future, about 5G. And I would like to say, you know, uh, our collaboration here in European continent, you know, may play an even bigger role in the future in Africa continent to help that continent to leapfrog, you know, the jumping into the, the, the new uh, information society. In that sense, you know, you, you, uh, some of the, the, the less developed, you know, status in Africa, or the less strict regulation, regulatory status may help the, the other continent in that sense. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was very useful. And let's go straight to Estelle for the last word, as it were, in this first round, and then we, we have a conversation. Thank Estelle. you. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you this morning. Thank you uh, for having me this morning, and Alicia, uh, especially for sending the invitation. Uh, I'm a journalist, therefore I know very little, and I'm not as competent as uh, my fellow panelists. I just would want to comment, therefore, on everything that is being said. I think that what is most interesting in um, our guest from Huawei is the difference perspective, which sums up how uh, China and the EU are very different in seeing Africa. For the Europeans, uh, the main discussion, the main conversation regarding Africa is the migrants. It's a security threat, it's a problem. Looking south is bringing anxiety to Europeans and we all have in mind what we do in the media is showing people, uh, showing pictures of boat people which are mostly coming from Africa. <coughs> Nonetheless, the reality of migration to Europe is coming from the Middle East, Afghanistan, Asia, and not from Africa. Therefore, there's a problem <coughs> of perception which is playing heavily into the politics and the policies from the EU towards Africa. It is playing heavily to the point where this morning, this morning preparing for this presentation, because of course I'm so very prepared, I Googled and then I went on the EU website and then EU-Africa relationships in figures, EU aid, that's the first figure. 
represents more than 50% of global aid. Africa is not a market. The first perception is that it is a continent that is in desperate need of aid. That in itself poses a major problem from the African perspective. The whole difference, because I'm going back to the, the title of the discussion, what is the implication of having China in Africa, is that it changes the game for Africans. We are not in a tete-a-tete -tete anymore. We're having different players to the table. We're playing competition. I say we because I'm African, as well as French, but I'm African as well. Therefore, when you have a new player in town, you know, Chinese are hot, they can be cheap, they're less demanding regarding conditionalities, they're open, and they're willing to go the extra mile. For Africans, it's good news. Of course, the honeymoon period is over. You know, Africans are you know, becoming a bit more uh, skeptics regarding contracts. Some would say we never learn fast enough, but it has changed the conversation. Moving on to the second issue of the European-Africa relationship, if we go back to, to business and trade and, and economics, 70% of goods ex exported from the EU to Africa are manufactured goods. 60% of goods imported from Africa to the EU are primary goods. They are raw material, energy, food and drinks. It's an unbalanced relationship. It's, if you look at the value chain, Africa is at the bottom, Europe is at the top. But if we go deeper, the EU and China are competitors in terms of what they're producing, in terms of manufactured goods. Are the European products meeting the African consumer's needs? That's the question. Why is the EU not looking at Africa as a market? Probably because they assume that Africans don't have the spending power that could buy the, Af the European products. China is looking at it in a different way, very smartly. They, say, they look at the projected growth for Africa in 2025, 3.5 on average. I'm saying on average because the point of view from, the, from Europe is to forget that it's 54 countries. It is so very diverse, with very different economies. Europe is still looking at the continent with two continents, MENA, the North African Arab, but in a European slang you would say it's the Arab Africa, therefore it's not Africa. For Sub-Saharan Africa, it's a different reality. For the Chinese, it's a continent, different markets, different realities, they adapt. The last thing I wanted to mention, and you touched on it, is how China is partnering up with Europe to attack the, the, the African market. Interestingly, my president, President Macron, on his first visit to China, dedicated a third of his first speech in China to talk about Africa. Meaning that in the European point of view, Africa, if the Europeans cannot do without China in Africa, let's work together. 
For Africans, it's the Europeans ganging up with the Chinese against them. Therefore, at the moment, we're at a pivotal time when the change and having a competition regarding Africa is being diminished. I also wanted to point out that this week there was the annual meetings of Afrexim Bank, which is an African investment bank, that was being held in Moscow. <clears throat> Moscow is planning on holding its first ever African-Russian summit that will be in October in Russia, meaning that you have a whole lot of new players. And that changes the game for Africans. The question for Europeans, are they prepared to change their view and their offer towards Africa? Are they willing to adapt? If we look at what the needs are for Africa, it's $150 billion a year in investment in infrastructure. Meaning that if the EU is willing to invest in Africa, there is room. $150 billion a year. Not a single country can respond to the need of Africans in terms of infrastructure investments. It's simply impossible, regardless of how vast the reserves of China in terms of money they would be willing to spend, it would not have enough to meet the demand of Africa. And in terms of business, it would not make sense. Why would you put all your eggs in the same basket? The question, I think, uh, from a European point of view is also to look at the economic partnerships agreements which are being negotiated between the EU and African sub-regions. So far, none of them, none of them have been ratified and signed. The main opponents, Nigeria, Tanzania, if I'm not mistaken, are the big players in the continents. But what is most interesting is how the discussion is going in Africa. One, African countries, because the discussion has taken place last year in Abidjan, the African countries talked to their European counterparts and said, you know what, who are we signing with? Are we signing with the EU, but with or without the UK? Brexit played heavily. They were like, sort out your Brexit mess, and then come back to us. A. That plays because if you look, and that's what Alicia touched on, the EU is the institution, but it's all individually European countries investing in individual African countries. Therefore, that's why it's so hard to paint a full picture. The French have their former colonial sphere of influence, the Brits have their own, and then you have secondary players in Africa. Italy, Portugal, little Spain, a little Belgium, a little Germany, therefore it's scattered. So if you have the UK gone, you just have France left as a big player. France is scrambling, they don't have enough money to fund their influence. Most of the French influence is a security, uh, a military influence, and it has led, fall a bit, the economic influence. That poses a problem. So the, the Africans said, you know, sort out the Brexit first and then we might think about it. Second, they said to their European partners, 
you know what, if we sign the economic partnership agreements, that will destroy our agriculture. It's already an unfair trade agreement, but if we go further, that will prevent us from going up in the value chain, which is the main objective of all African countries. Because, as Alicia explained, the de demographic ticking bomb is on the mind of most African leaders, and they're thinking we need to create jobs. Africa being the largest reserve of arable land because of the growing population on the planet, you will have to one day feed them, you will need to grow the food in Africa. Agriculture is labor intensive, there you go, it's a great deal, but African countries also realize, looking at their fig figures, you know, we need to produce you know, wheat or whatever, but we need to actually sell uh, flour. We, we cannot just produce wheat. We have to go up the value chain. So they're saying, you know, the EPAs are not a good thing. They will prevent us from going into, up in the value chain. We need to get special conditions. And African countries are saying the EPAs would be competing with the African continental free trade area, which is the biggest project in terms of free trade within the continent. And I think that's an interesting thing, positive thing for the Europeans. The Africans are being inspired by the European project to build an economic free trade zone. Some would argue we could learn from our mistakes, but still it's working. And it is fast, fast moving forward. And I think that the interesting uh, thing about that is that at the same time, France has started the discussion around ending the CFA, le France CFA, which is an inheritance uh, from the colonial era where France is holding the reserves, the, the monetary reserves of several Western countries, West African countries, and now President Macron has opened the discussion to say maybe we should uh, allow those countries to hold their reserves, change the name of the France CFA, and probably change the symbols. Therefore, there is some sort of an understanding that things cannot go on as usual. And I think that, in, in a way, that's the biggest contribution of China in Africa. In a sort of a probably not anticipated vision, it indirectly, it has changed the conversation because it has created a triangle. And it's not just a triangle, you have Turkey, you have Brazil, which is also investing a lot in Africa, you have all sorts of new players who are coming in the back of China and saying, hmm, if the Chinese are going there, then maybe there is actually a market. If we can go in and have a, a basic plus offer for an African market, there is money to be made. And I think that for Africans, it's something that is new and that they want to pursue, that they want others to learn from. And I think that for Europeans, that's a good message. The last thing I wanted to know, because to, to say, because that's the... Uh, that's important, that's relevant to this discussion. This weekend, there has been a, a, a coup attempt in Ethiopia. As Alicia mentioned, 
it is one of the largest chunk of Chinese investment in Africa. The question posed by the coup, the, the, the attempted coup in Ethiopia, it's not the first, it's been very uh, unstable. Some may know that there's a, a change in, in, in Ethiopia with a new reformist president, uh, a new prime minister. It's, it's very shaky. It started peace with its neighbors. It started uh, opening up. It's democratizing with a multi-party uh, sort of uh, political dialogue, there is change in one of the giant countries of the continent where China has invested massively, where it has interests. And after Sudan, it's one where African observers are looking how Beijing will, will react. The same way they looked at how Beijing reacted to what happened with Mugabe, meaning that we went from China being an economic player to understanding that it's now a political and military player in Africa and has to be taken into the equation as a big player. And that's, I was talking about yesterday, after the Pax Americana, the Pax uh, um, of, of the French, it's Pax China, Pax China. What does it mean for Africa? Because if you have economic interests, you have to protect them. That's common sense. Thank you very much, Estella. Very interesting points. I mean, I wish we had a, lot, a little bit more time to talk about the trade issues because we're talking mostly about investment. But uh, Alicia, the numbers you showed, uh, there were the investment, the European investment, it wasn't development aid, right? No, it was, so, so Europe is still the biggest investor in, in Africa, if I can, so I mean, and the US, yeah. So I mean, so I mean, it's not entirely correct that Europe doesn't see Africa as a market. It is a, right. If I if I see your numbers there, it's not just China. But it's an interesting point you make, Estelle, that actually the presence of China in Africa just changed the dynamic in terms of you know who invests where. So and and you know the, the title has consequences for Europe. So I mean, if you allow me to come back to the to the issue of what it all means for Europe, and I think you've touched on this, Estelle, in very interesting ways. But understanding China and the interest of China and the, and the scope for development in China, domestically, in, within China and also abroad, is extremely interesting actually for, uh, for the discussion on trade issues worldwide, the US, all of this is a, is a balance that has been shifted, altered as a result of China becoming a bigger player. And, and, and I wanted to come back to you, uh, Solange, to this issue of um, the business model. If you can elaborate a little bit on, on what you said on, on the, about the Chinese business model and the need for change. What did you mean by that and the soft power versus hard power? What, what, what did you mean by all that in terms of how China needs to change its business model to integrate better in the world? Well, I mean, essentially, the, the, the point is that the, um, the conditions that enabled China's miraculous growth, um, essentially, which means a large demographic dividend, you know, it had a, it had a window of opportunity where the world was rich <laughs> and needed goods and had the money to pay for the goods that China could produce with foreign technology. And what you had was massive technology transfer to China at a period where, you know, it slowly climbed up. Um, you, know, you know, the value chain, the industrial value chain. But China wants better quality jobs. You know, it, 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 the question, to bring it back to Africa, yes, you know, is China generating jobs or not? But the main issue is, is there any possible for structural change and industrial upgrade, which is what we went on. Um, and that's where China is at. China is now sort of, you know, it's got its back at the wall and it's, it has to, it's, it's basically the demographic dividend, which is basically a large pool of underqualified, cheap, flexible labor 
which China had. China doesn't have that anymore. So it's looking actually to shift this manufacturing base, its low-end manufacturing base to other parts of the world, including Southeast Asia, including Africa. Essentially what it's saying is it's looking for countries that looked like China did in the 1980s. And Africa is that. Africa has large reserves of um, disposable, politically weak, politically voiceless, cheap labor force. Hmm. You know, can they, you know, integrate into these value chains the way that China did? It depends because, you know, the economic equation is never a purely economic equation. It happens within a social context, which is what I try to highlight, you know. Specifically, it happens in, you know, it, it needs good policies to integrate it. You need to complement uh, good economic policies with good social policies, you know, with an accent on education. You need relatively strong laws, etc., a strong legal framework um, for all that to happen. But... Essentially, what we're looking at is a shrinking labor force in China. People often talk about China has the largest population. It has a shrinking labor force, and it's becoming more and more expensive, and it has an aging population. So it's very simple. Within the next 20 years, China has a very small window of opportunity to essentially get its act together and move away from being export-driven, export-dependent. Its economy has to sort of, in a way, become more autonomous compared to the global, global market and rely on domestic consumption, but a healthy domestic consumption, um, and what we call indigenous innovation. So, you know, you know really R&D, research and development-driven innovation. It's interesting, if I may... This is the industrial policy, obviously, behind all of this, you know, yeah. behind 2025 issues. But on the export side, I mean, if you look at the numbers, per capita, yeah. China exports about, per capita, it exports about $1,500 uh, to, to the world. That's the value of its exports, per capita. The American equivalent is 3000 The French is nine to 10000 per capita. The German German is 18,000. So, I mean, if um, there is, you know, to the extent that export models work, and the, the, the French and German numbers include the single market within Europe, but still there is an export-based model that Europe has exploited for many, many years. And if, if, China, if China has space to do that, I mean, by comparison, even if it were to go to the American numbers, it still has a long way to go. So, I mean, it would be interesting to know whether China can and will want to follow the export-led growth um, in the future, as others did. Of course, Ch China has scale. Uh, and therefore, if, if China went to go down the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Uh, let's say export model, uh, it would it will it would become gigantic in the in the in the global context. I think that might go somewhere towards explaining why the U.S. is so uh, may I say uncomfortable, uh, if nothing else. Um, but I mean, is it uh, question mark? Is this is this the future? You you seem to answer that it's not the future. No, uh, we both uh, no. Okay. You can't. You can't. Yeah. Okay. China were to export eighty thousand. But don't take 80,000, take, take the US number. We would need the moon. It's yeah. not <laughs> That's right. in this world to buy those 80,000 um, dollars right. per person. Yeah. That's right. And this is what we, this is the problem. China is too big for everybody. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's simply too big for everybody. So it, and this is why they're in a way trapped in the moon. You need your, uh, sorry. sorry. Because they, in a way, you're right, Marie. I mean, probably they thought, wow, we can. Say we can become the Germany of the world. They already did long time ago. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. have 30% of global manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody on earth got there. <laughs> so if we were to push that to $80,000 per capita, everything would be made in to, Maybe that's why you are discovering the other side of the moon to see if you find somebody there. Because, <laughs> because there's not enough people in the world who can afford those goods. No matter how much this middle-income class in Africa, in India, it's just. I mean, it's just impossible. So I think they need to change their model. Yeah. There's no way out. 
Okay, very good. Yes. But I think that that's where uh, the Chinese perception of Africa is interesting. They see the continent as a reservoir of the working force that is disappearing back home, and they see the continent as the reservoir of consumers that will absorb the cheap, the cheap uh, production. Because as well as resources. As, as well, well as resources. Therefore, I think that, that the, the, the African bride is very sexy in Chinese eyes because the surplus that, that we talked about are being absorbed mm. by Africans. And then, and then they, the, the Chinese, I don't know, you know if it's right or wrong, but perceive that there is a huge potential of growth in that market as well as a potential workforce. And in that, it's a holistic approach. We employ this growth dividend, this bulge of youth in Africa, we help Africans create this uh, manufacturing. Uh, manufacturing consumers, uh, large working class that will consume, and therefore we can help in terms of um, domestically having this um, surplus being sold, so it's not lost, and then we can and I, I um, visited and, and reported on the, the, the factories which are being built by the Chinese in Ethiopia, for example. Uh, because our, the, the Chinese workforce is becoming too expensive, you have that disposable workforce in massive numbers in, in Africa. Therefore, let's transfer some of our uh, not so cheap now uh, factories which were based in China. We, we are transferring them to Africa. But I also think that it is interesting that for African leaders, it is a, a, a project that they are buying into for their own political survival. It's something that there is no other country that is making them such an offer. Yeah. Okay, but not no, saying but it's realistic. Can we just take some questions from the audience as well and come back to the conversation because I, I, I want the audience to be involved as well. Can we have the gentleman here and then the gentleman here? Let's start from. Uh, can you please introduce ourselves? Thank you. Yeah. Laurent Bonneau, I'm an independent scholar. Um, the debates suggested three, uh, four questions to me. Luckily enough, Estelle raised three of them, which are namely the Brexit impact, the currency role or changing international currency role, especially in Africa, uh, uh, following investment and changes in investments. And the fourth question was putting in economic perspective the recent events in Ethiopia. Yeah. I would be very interested to hear developments of the other panelists on these three questions. Okay. The fourth point is a bit more technical uh, concerning project finance and maybe PPPs, private to public partnerships in Africa. Has uh, there been a change too in the patterns of governance for project finance following Chinese investment in this field. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you very much. And gentlemen here, please, at the front. Anybody at the back? Hi, I'm Chong from China Daily. Yeah, uh, just a very brief comment on the question. I mean, actually, you know, U.S. also import uh, from Africa. 90% of the import to the U.S. is natural resources. So don't get it like China. I mean, we import a lot of natural resources from Canada, Australia, and they love to export that to China. I mean, I just... Can you keep your microphone? Because okay. there's people... I just hate to uh, see headlines. I'm a journalist. I mean, fellow journalists see headlines like uh, uh, describe everything China, Africa as geopolitical. I mean, in fact, Europe goes to Africa. It's a counter-China. 
I mean, as you said very well, I think Africa is big enough. I mean, they need uh, American, European, I mean, Indian, South Korean, Japanese, Chinese, I mean, to invest in infrastructure. I don't spend nine years in Africa. I spend nine days in Ethiopia. I mostly spend uh, every day and night in the East Industrial Zone. Actually, it's your competitor, ZTE, build all the telecom infrastructure in Ethiopia. I mean, Huawei joined later. But you know, it's an amazing story. I talked to an Ethiopian employee that uh, ZTE actually, they are so proud to pay to support the family. It makes them so proud as a family member. You know, the Hua <coughs> Jian, in, in, you know, the shoemaker in industrial zone created four thousand jobs in, in less like six years ago. They promised to produce. I mean, the news headline today is that actually they are going to launch. They're just about to complete another industrial zone called Dai. Yeah. I don't know. It's huge. So do you also have a question, please? Yeah. My question is really, I mean, I really like to hear from the panelists how actually you would advise China, Europe, uh, I mean, America, everyone to join hands. I mean, you know, it's like building infrastructure, Asia, Africa, very Latin nice America, question. not to just call it a geopolitical <laughs> rivalry. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, is there a question? We can take a third question or? Yes, here, please. I'm formerly with the European Commission. I have a question for the representative Huawei. It's quite obvious now that geopolitics is becoming a new form of risk for tech companies. And it's a difficult task how to manage that. I'm wondering, given you have a conflict with, China, with Canada and other experiences, have you been preparing how to deal with those geopolitical risks. And if you have been preparing, how how you do that? What kind of preparation as a tech company in that uh, difficult geopolitical area? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, perhaps then we can ask from, can we start from you, Abraham, if yes. you don't mind? Uh... <clears throat> to answer your question, I think maybe most of the audience has been following all the developments. Every day while we under spotlights, and uh, the whole background, I don't have to explain, you know, why we as a victim now under the attack of the, the superpower of the world, you know, the U.S. administrations. And, uh, you know, I have to say, in Huawei side, we have been, we have, a, we have a project called Business Continuity Management, which has been started 15 years ago under the consultant from the, the, the U.S. consultant company called IBM. So while we, we have been assumed all the extreme situation, including what is happening now. So in a, in a certain way, we have prepared, uh, and we are confident that we are going to survive. Uh, obviously, there are Im impact you know, to our uh, customers and, and, uh, and, uh, and the consumers, and, but they are minor one. You know. But overall, if you look at the whole, whole picture of the industry, it's even uh, I think it's even more dangerous than in Huawei's own case. Because the ICT industry has been, a, I think, one of the most uh, global, collaborated you know, industry. Every vendor from our industry, no matter is Huawei or uh, Ericsson or Nokia Siemens or Cisco, our nature is actually more or less the same. We are global R&D, global supply chain, and global services. You know, can you imagine Ericsson also have their 80% of their equipment manufactured in China. And they have 
uh, more than 10,000 R&D people in China. While we, we have more than 12,000 people in Europe, and we invest heavily in Europe as well. A lot of uh, invention, inter, you know, uh, innovation are actually working together with the European uh, universities or R&D researches. So in a bigger uh, you know, extent, Huawei's solution is part of European innovation. But what happened is the US government, without ignoring all the, the, the legal processes and announced that we are you know, uh, a sort of national security threat to the US government. By the way, they said the, the, the German uh, cars are also the national, street, uh, national security threat to them. Toyota also the, the, the national security threat to them. So they have misused this concept of national security, uh, security threat and now target to the international company like Huawei. And we are, you know, we are confident that we, 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 meant we, are, we are going to go through all this and we are, you know, but the danger is to any other, the other international companies. I think the founder of ARM from UK, the ARM, the chipset company, he, ha he has publicly said his friends are all considering of mitigate the dependence to the US suppliers. Because who knows one day, you know, what kind of uh, reason will, you know, the same reason will, will be applied, will be uh, applied, and what happened to the other smaller, less prepared uh, international company, you know, from the, I would not quote one of the, 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 the announcement from the chairman of the U.S. companies association, to, you know, related to China. He said, this is actually a kind of murder, you know, activity of murder to international companies. So the threat is the, for, for the whole industry. And in specifically, specifically in Huawei case, we have some minor uh, impact. And it, the, the leading solutions like the 5G, or the, the core network, like uh, the, the, the optical, optical transmission, those solutions are still maintained completed to our customer. And our colleagues across, you know, are working very closely with our customers, and they maintain very, uh, still maintain a strong confidence on, our, on Huawei case. Thank, thank you very much. I mean, this is a complex issue, and the issue of, uh, I mean, we, we have events on this issue uh, very often, actually, and understanding the U.S., but understanding also complex issues, new issues, data protection, all of these issues, technological pass-through, uh, these are issues that are complicated, and I think, I think the question that was here came from our audience was about how do you prepare for these risks, and I think that's, that's the thing, whether they are risks that are going to materialize or they're not going to materialize or whether they're legitimate or not. It's a, it's a different question, but preparing for the possibility of these things is something that I think what the question was uh, mostly. But uh, our other panelists, Stel, would you like to take some of the questions? How do you kind of cooperate at the global level? I mean, oh, um, other than compete in uh, geopolitics. I'm no diplomat <laughs> would be bad at that. But I think that the African perspective is that uh, collaboration is probably against African interests. Mm. You know, for Africa, competition has been good news. Cartels are not so much good news for Africa. Therefore, the whole attitude of let's collaborate against Africa is like not too well received on the continent. But I wanted to answer uh, the question against, uh, around the renminbi. I think that it's a very interesting question because um, in its pursuit of making renminbi an international currency reserve, um, uh, China has uh, worked 
very efficiently at creating swaps with African countries. Uh, so, so far, it's Egypt, South Africa, Nigeria, and then um, I think Sudan, so far, and counting. Uh, and the idea is also to have African central bankers lobbying to have the renminbi part of the basket of um, uh, the IMF. Um, and so I think that's a very smart move, meaning that if you have your, your goods sold on the continent and you make sure that that line of trade is made in your own currency, you're not only increasing the footprint of the renminbi, but you're securing that trade from interferences from Washington. I think that's a very, very smart and strategic move. And long term, that is, of course, um, observed and it's worrying uh, the, the EU as well as Washington. I also would want to mention the fact that where is the EU on uh, the... Um, IT digital economy uh, in Africa discussion. That's the biggest question I think that this asks. You know, if if you look at what what my colleague described, yes, the the, the mobile networks has helped uh, Africa leapfrog, and it is crucial. If you have Mr. Zuckerberg flying to Nigeria, it's not because of the weather. It's because it's the largest market where you have, as Mr. pointed out, no legislation to protect the data. It is a problem not to have the EU in that discussion. And it's not just an industrial problem. It's because you have, at the moment, 9% of African GDP created by the digital economy. And it will be growing. So, the European investors are not investing in that. One would say, okay, Huawei is just providing the mobile phones. But as the journalist points out, no, the Chinese are building the telecommunication infrastructures. They're providing the tubes as well. Where are European companies in that market? Why aren't we betting on digital Africa? For many reasons, I'm asking that because for example, when you look at IBM investing in Africa, when you look at other companies, because of the diversity on the continent and because of the, the low infrastructure, Africans are a land of innovation, digital innovation, to a degree which is inspiring. You know, the, the democracies, for example, in Kenya, was the fir first country to experience digital uh, campaigns. You know, it's, it's, you know, Western world discovered it in the US, but it's actually in Kenya where, where there was the, the, the most uh, digital footprint on politics. But what, what I'm, I'm, I'm looking at is also the fact that because of the diversity in terms of languages, of ethnicities and low tech, you have the most creative programmers. You have the most pro, 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 uh, innovative uh, apps. Therefore, it's a land which is overlooked by European investors where other countries, and it's not just China, it's also India, who we did not mention in the discussion, but it, we, it's crucial if one wants to understand what's going on in Africa, in the eastern part of the continent. One has to understand also the competition between India and China. 
Okay, I think that Solange Bell, but we'll give you the floor and then Alicia will close because I think we are coming to an end. Yeah. Just in terms about, you know, the, you know, where are the interfaces for, for synergy and cooperation? Well, if you speak to African leaders or, Af um, sorry, Chinese um, actors in Africa, or, you know, whether they're heads of a, a state-owned company or companies, you know, very often, and I've put this to ambassadors and different people I interviewed, I said, you know, where, where do you see, you know, is there any sort of room for innovation? They, all, they very often sort of answer the same thing, say, we're guests in this country. We will go we will, with whatever the local host wants to do. So they push the ball back into the court of their host, and they say, if the hosts want us to do something, then we will, you know, investigate and go down that road. But we will never sort of unilaterally make a decision on how there can be some sort of trilateral cooperation framework and impose that framework onto the domestic country. And I think that's really interesting because it's essentially saying, look, again, you know, giving agency, I don't like the term, but essentially just asking the people on the ground, you know, what would they like? Um, what do you mean by that? Because the sectors... They will not, they will not, I mean, of course decision. it depends. If you look at industrial, okay, I mean, of course, if we're talking about, um, you know, specific sectors within the, you know, the private sector, how does that work? I mean, that's different. You know, you have um, huge industrial cooperation going on, let's say, within the shipping industry. So you have massive Chinese shipping companies and port authorities who are collaborating with, you know, some of the Danish and French monopolies in the market. That's what's happening kind of on a, on a global level. But if you're looking at political frameworks... In no, terms but of different, yeah. yeah, but that's very important because that's what we're talking about. That's where these are the kind of parameters you can't control. You cannot stop Marx, you know, the Danish company and tell them what to do, you know, and tell them how to operate their ports in Africa. You cannot. You cannot tell Bolloré to basically collaborate with China in Africa. These companies are above the law. They're above states. So if we're going back to the level, you know, of how do how can states collaborate? That's kind of how they think. They will the Chinese will say, well, we'll look at how you know local operate, you know, what the local leaders want, and we'll do that. And going back to the local leaders in terms of regime change in, in Ethiopia, I, I'm going to say this again. You know, I think China is a patient investor. You know, they're not new to Africa. They're not new to the volatility on the continent. Um, they understand, you know, the, the the fundamental nature and physics of politics, and I think they're in it for the, they're playing the long game. That doesn't mean that they will change their strategies and their tactics to react to change on the ground. And I do think that as more investment and more credit is being loaned to Africa, China will get to a point where it will say, how much, can, how, many, how much losses can it take? You know, they will get to a point where China will say, OK, I can lose, but at what point? And then, of course, we get to the militarized question. I mean, I think we're still very, very far off in terms of security. China really, you know, if you don't even look at Chinese military activity on the continent, look at Chinese military activity within China. Their, new, their, you know, their armed forces don't have any combat experience. China has not been in war you know, for decades. So, in fact, you know, what it's got, it's got a blue helmet force um, that is peacekeeping force in Africa. It is increasing its humanitarian intervention, so it's sending people to Mozambique in term, you know, when there are natural disasters taking place. Uh, but I think we're still very far from... Why would it invest and t wait for ages to scale up when it can just you know, may maybe rely on people like Prince, <laughs> you, know, um, you know, modern... Um, what are they called? Uh, mercenaries. You know, we have that. We have private security companies that can protect certain things. I'm not saying it'll go down that road, but I'm saying China has several options. I don't think it's going to deploy its army across uh, Africa. Now, I think it's really investing in specific innovative technologies. It has a very, you know, clear, clear idea of what it wants to do. Going back to kind of the made, 
you want to essentially move from a made-in-China model, which is the base of you know, manufacturing hub of the world, to a made-by-China and be the owners of the patents, basically, of the technology of tomorrow. So it's yeah. very different. Thank you very much for that. But uh, Alice, you have the last word. But can I ask you also to comment on this on on the point you made that uh, China gives credit; it does not do FDI. Can you can you uh, elaborate on this because it, yeah. it has something on the commitment side that I would like you to elaborate on? Yeah. Uh, so, so I guess um, we have one minute left. <laughs> Many questions plus one more. I'm going to be very brief. Yes, I mean, Solan Shua right that that's what we would expect from China. I would expect China to sit there and, you know, and... Wait. <laughs> yeah, take the fruits that, you know, the tree that has planted. But that's not what I see. That's not what I see in the data in the sense that I think China's becoming more like us in the sense that China wants to protect its investment in the same way we did because it's now so much more than when they invested in the you know, in the railway, in the Zambia railway. It's, it's just so much more important for companies like Huawei or others, City, we just heard, in Ethiopia. I, I think they are starting to become nervous about their investments in the world. And you just told us about Ethiopia, what happened. So why, I would do the same. No, no, um, you know, I, I, I just don't blame them because that's what everybody else has done. And on that, in that regard, I think that uh, we'll probably see more, uh, you know, forceful ac action and more short-term uh, lending rather than investment. Because if it were the case that that in this long-term thinking, China is thinking of Africa as its new manufacturing power, the numbers do not support that uh, at all, at all. It's literally nothing what China has yet invested, has so far invested in manufacturing in Africa to the extent of what, I mean, to what is needed. China has invested much more in Vietnam than in Africa. And, and thus, if this continent is their future, they should show it to me, as simple as that. So this is my recommendation. I mean, if to me, it, 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 I mean, I agree that Africa needs it, so let's show it. Uh, and not only China, everybody else, because the numbers are not there for anybody. Do not feel threatened or, you know, it, it's, not, it's not true for any country. Yeah. Africa is the least, uh, the, the smallest recipient of FDI in the world. And, and much less so if you look at manufacturing. So it's not China, it's everybody else for that matter. So this would call for more of a multilateral engagement so people won't come and say, and you're saying, we are, we're coming with so many other suppliers, but, but when you make your advertisement, it's you showing your 5G, nobody else. So I'm saying, why don't we have more kind of alliances? I know we can't force anybody, so long as you're absolutely right, but, but I think that that would reduce the geopolitical risk of the whole story. So. More manufacturing FDI, more alliances in that, those sectors where it is possible. I'm not sure whether yours is one, but I, I guess after hearing you, it seems it is because that's what you're doing, not maybe what the sector is showing, not necessarily you. Uh, and also, um, uh, less lending and more aid. You, you complain about aid from Europe. I wish that we had that amount for China. If you look at China's aid, Africa is one of the smallest recipients. So, but the AD doesn't want aid. Well, but they get <laughs> lending and get into the debt trap. Sure. 
You know, if you look at Lao, but it's a matter of choice. That's that's what we. I mean, I'm just saying. I don't know whether aid is the solution. Certainly not loans at rates that are unpayable for infrastructure that is bound to last for 30 years. With loans, the average maturity of a loan is three years. So, you know, I don't know whether aid is the solution. Certainly not the amount of project finance lending in the current circumstances. Let alone the fact that. It's basically policy banks from China, meaning you don't have a set of investors with which you can play. It's a single lender, so or two, Exim Bank, and so. So I think the model now might not be. I mean, maybe aid is, you know. Uh, I think the problem with aid is the way we do it, not necessarily that it's free. It's never you know, free. It's not free. <laughs> it's never free. But if you pay seven percent annual, three year to finance an infrastructure project, you are even worse off might not be able to pay, and we heard about the port of Mombasa, which was actually not true that it was sized, but close to that, uh, so you may end up without owning the asset. So I'm just thinking that, that there's a lot of things we could do. Multilateral, less lending, maybe not aid, then invest, mm. then invest. Yeah. You don't like aid, invest, but I would not get into the massive lending sure. that Africa, I mean, the World Bank has come up with, a, with a, quite a few numbers as to how much yeah. Uh, countries are uh, borrowing. Um, the, the stream case actually, the stream cases are not in Africa. They are in Laos, PDR. They are. I mean, they, these countries have increased their their debt to China of the other 200 percent in five years. So I think this is not uh, sustainable. And I'm not saying that China wants to trap them. If I were the lender, I wouldn't want to trap anybody. I want to be paid back. It's it's, the, it's actually the responsibility of the borrower, no doubt about it. But I think this is an unsustainable model for anybody on earth, let alone a country like Africa that doesn't have the jobs needed to create the disposable income, which will then pay the debt for the infrastructure that you may or may not need. Some of it may be needed. Some of it may not have even been the choice of, of the country itself. So, So to me, this is kind of a... Kind of unsustainable model. It, uh, it's welcome, but welcome if it's redefined in a more sustainable way. That would be my last word. Yeah. Thank you, Alicia, very much. I mean, and I know yet you need to go, so I'm afraid we have to bring this to an end. Estelle, Solange, uh, Abraham, and Alicia, thank you so much for joining us this very hot morning here at Brugge. Thank you very much. Please uh, join me in, in thanking our panelists. Thank you.